the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I am the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer. I would like to remind you to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and also check out our YouTube channel. Wherever you can, if you can give us a good rating, that helps other people find this podcast. And our hope every time we do one of these is that we give hope to someone or that we provide them with information that will help them. There are so many people out there who are struggling, whose loved ones are struggling with addiction. And this pandemic is not going to go away with any sort of vaccination. So we need to keep talking about this problem. We need to keep offering solutions. And that's what we're doing every single week. Today's episode is episode number 236. And today we have a gentleman on the podcast. His name is Alan Charles. Alan had a successful sports career, but he became addicted to cocaine. Now he has been in clean and sober for many years and he's also a published author. So without further ado, let's talk to Alan Charles. So Alan Charles, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and telling your story. I know you're a public speaker and I appreciate that. And so I'm just excited to hear your story. Well, thank you, Johnny. It's a pleasure to be here. Where would you like to start? Well, back at the beginning, where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? What kind of led you down the path of drugs and or alcohol? Well, you know, now that I can look back at it and, and, and really grasp what went on, um, you know, with most of us that have run into addiction problems, it starts very early on, whether it's the parenting, whether it's being put in a, a tough situation. And um, my life started out, everything was great. I was... Um, I was a little kid and I had a younger brother who was two years younger than me. My mother and father, we lived in a garden apartment in Yonkers, New York. And there were other families with children and tons of families. There was probably a hundred different garden apartments within a general area. And then everybody had kids. So we were out playing and I thought I had the greatest life. Uh, you know, I, I, we didn't even have to lock the door. I mean, back mm. when I was little, it, it was just, and we were in the middle of the, a city. So it was just so much fun. Um, but my life changed and it changed like instantaneously when I was nine years old. Um, unfortunately, my dad passed and my mother emotionally checked out. And I went from being a carefree nine-year-old with my brother, seven years old. Um, within a year, I took over the household. Um, I was working two jobs by the time I was 10. By the time I was 12, um, I was working every morning. I had a paper out every afternoon. I came back from school and weekends. I had a paper out. Uh, Saturdays and Sundays, I was working for a mobile truck washing company and not to get off base, but I mean, I had to grow up fast. My household got dysfunctional. My mother had no control over my, my brother who unfortunately had some mental health issues and it got progressively worse. The household got 
violent and I, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD because I found out my brother would, would use, uh, come where I was sleeping and put a knife under my neck and wake me up. And I blocked it out and didn't find it. You know, there's so many wonderful tidbits that we find out when we get sober and clean. And I did some, um, where they, they, uh, what is it called? Where they put you to sleep? Uh, hypnosis. Uh, yeah, I, I had a hypnosis session and all these things came out that were just mind blowing. So, yeah, so my, my, and I didn't even remember that. So just to give you an example, when I went away to college and everybody said, how was your, ch- what was your childhood? Like I used to tell everybody and I was a hundred percent convinced. I said, I had this wonderful childhood. And as I told you, the beginning part of running around Yonkers and having all these kids to play with and everything, it did seem like it was wonderful, but I blocked out all the other stuff and uh, I didn't deal with it until I was in my 40s and 50s. Wow. You had to deal with so much that a 10-year-old child should not have to deal with. Yeah, it was was tough. I go back and... You know, I, I, I think the real wake up call was or really how it, it struck me the most was when my children, my daughters turned nine. And I was like, oh, my God, at that age, I lost my father and I was taking over the household. So I'm watching and I'm looking at other kids and I'm like, you know, nine years old, 10 years old, you just you basically, you're going to school, you get told what to do, you start to develop, um, you know, you'll clean your room, you get some money and stuff like that. I was already making decisions and signing my my brother's our report cards. If there was an absent note, I would sign the absent note. I was dealing with bill collectors. I had people coming back and forth that uh, we couldn't give them any money. I said, if you stop by in a month, I might have some money for you. I mean, I, I, it was it was ridiculous. But Wow. I mean, it's a wonder that you survived, do you know? But, but what there then led you to drugs and or alcohol? And when did that start? I, I, I mean, I don't know. I listened to your story and I might have started drinking at nine. I don't know. Well, you know what? I was very fortunate and I was just basically a good kid. And that's what it turned out to be was, you know, I, I understood my father wasn't there. We were, we were left broke. We were on welfare. I was working and I just decided that here, this is an important thing. I don't mean to, to skip your question of, you know, how did you start? I'll get to that in a minute, but, but I think this is important because I think, I don't know if you've read the book called The Secret. Um, I love it. And, and it talks about putting energy out there and that you kind of create your your own life, that if you want things to happen, you think about it, you put the energy out. So when I was nine years old, um, I didn't know much about religion or spirituality. And um, everything was hidden about my father's death. And I, I don't know if you may have come upon this but um eventually when i was 36 i found out that my father committed suicide but i didn't know that at the time so there was a lot of hush hush and they didn't let me go to the funeral and i was like i didn't know what was going on nobody explained anything to me all i knew is that my father died so every day at nine years old after this i would walk to school and i would talk to myself it was only a few blocks to my grade school 
where I lived in it. And I would, I would talk out loud and I say, you know, I don't know if my father is in that box that they buried him in, or is he up in heaven with God? Do I have a connection to God now that my father's there? Is he going to help me to play professional baseball? I mean, these are the things I was thinking about. And then I would say to myself, I said, okay, God, I, I don't know what's going on. All I know is that I am by myself on this earth. I have no idea what I'm going to do or what's going to happen. But no matter what, I am going to be able to get through any situation that comes my way. And I would keep saying that. And I said that every single morning to myself. And I believe that's why I'm still here today. Because I started putting that energy out. Because I've been through crazy stuff. Seriously, I would say that has a lot to do with it. Wow. Okay, so then, so how, now I'm going to go back to it. How and why did you even start on drugs? You... Well, here's what happened. I was anti-drug. After all this stuff going on and the craziness in my house, and I'm in high school and all the work and stuff I do, but I'm also playing baseball. And I fell in love with baseball. Probably I look at it and I, I kind of laugh and say that was my first drug that I was addicted to mm -hmm. because I ate and sleep baseball. Um, it allowed me to get out of the craziness of what was going on in my house. And I threw myself at nine years old. I was playing Little League. I was out all the time playing. So I had this baseball thing. It was important to me. So it was important what I put into my body. I was anti-drug in high school. If you went to my high school and, you know, talked to people and said, who, if they talked to different kids and they said, who's the biggest anti-drug person? That would have been me. Mm -hmm. I thought it was disgusting that people would smoke pot. We stopped talking to friends that started trying pot. So we wouldn't, we didn't want any part of it. I went to college, played baseball, fortunately signed a professional contract and, and I played down in the Dominican Republic. But after my baseball career was over, um, I had my first relationship and I fell in love at 24, 23, 24. I mean, I, I, I was very shy in school. I had anxiety, depression. I didn't talk to anybody. I was afraid of girls. If I had to talk, if I, there was a, oh, I, I had some beautiful girls that I went to grade school with that I had a crush on. Couldn't talk to anyone because I would start sweating and I'd be so nervous because the messages that I got were, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. So I, I just couldn't talk to anybody. So college, I found alcohol. I was able to do what, co-eds do in college and you know played and had fun and that but I was not interested in a relationship the only relationship I was interested in is a relationship of being a professional baseball player and my relationship with the team that was going to pay me to play that's the only relationship I wanted um so now I'm out of baseball I I, I had um tendonitis and operation um the writing was on the wall like I said, I played professionally in Dominican Republic. The following season, I had an opportunity to play in Mexico. And I was like, okay, I'm 24 years old. I've got probably as far as I could. I lived a dream. I did play. I signed a contract. So I go to work and I meet this girl, young lady, and we fall in love. And it's first relationship. I don't know what I'm doing. And we kind of progress into getting engaged. So we get engaged. And then after we got engaged, 
all the writing on it's my first relationship so we're starting to have a few problems things are starting to unravel and now we see we're not right for each other so we go through a, a breakup and as this breakup is going on this friend of mine who offered me cocaine periodically he would keep offering me i said joe i don't do stuff like that stop and this one day i guess i was in a very compromised state i was crying i was heartbroken it was my first love relationship so i lost her and now i'm starting i went right into this relationship so i never really grieved the loss of baseball so now i'm starting to grieve and saying you know what that was stupid i should have gone and played in mexico who knows what would have happened i have all these years down so i'm beating myself up and I finally tried his cocaine. Now, the one piece that I didn't tell you is those sessions of walking to school at nine years old where I was putting stuff out there that I'm going to be okay. I had a knot in my stomach from the day my father died that knot. And every single day I dealt with that knot anxiety in the pit of my stomach. So here I am, 24 out of this relationship, done with baseball. My friend Joe offers me a line of cocaine. And finally I say, what the hell, I'll try it. So I did it like I saw in the movies and I put the, gave me the, the straw and I held my nostril and I put my head down and I went. And then he said, tilt your head back so the cocaine will go down. So I tilt my head back. And as I feel the cocaine start to go down the back of my throat, this euphoria instantaneously appears and I am like oh my god where has this stuff been my entire life I believe I was addicted from that very first line and that was it that started a 24 year addiction where I lost everything everything and anything no more not in your stomach huh the knot was gone, but I didn't have anything else by the time I was done with uh, my addiction. Wow. It was, wow. It, was, it was terrible. I was hopeless. I got to the bottom. I was going to say, did you did you come back to the States? Were you back here? Oh, yeah. I got okay. back. I, I played this season in the Dominican Republic. I came back home. I went okay. back down to Florida for spring training, hoping to get signed in 85. Um, and it just didn't work out. Or 84. And I came back and, and started working. And then that's where I had that love relation, my first love so, relation. So what were you working then? I came back and uh, got a sales job working for Motorola Communications. Um, I had realized when I was young, when I had paper routes, um, they would have sales contests. And I started selling new subscriptions to the paper. Uh, I actually won a trip to California when I was 12 years old. I had the most sales. Uh, we, we It was the Gannett Westchester Rockland newspapers. So it was all of Westchester and all of Rockland County in New York, which is just north of New York City. It was 13 different cities. And at 12 years old, my they were giving away a trip from each of the cities. And whoever had the most, their manager would be the chaperone. And I I, I blew everybody away. It was pretty wild. So I want to trip to California. For two okay, years. so you're a salesman. So, so you're I knew I was selling. Right. Now, were you doing cocaine while you were selling? I mean, was that... No, I didn't no? start to okay. cocaine. So just perspective, um, 
uh, Motorola was my first job. So I'm 23, 24. I'm working there. And then I leave. And then I move up to Connecticut because I'm going to work at a radio station. And that's where my friend Joe ended up giving me the cocaine. I, I actually, I was at his house. I moved into his house. He said, why don't you come live with me? Because he lived up in um, uh, Fairfield County where the radio station was that I was going to work at. And we started literally on that Saturday was the first time I tried cocaine. We were partying Saturday, all day Sunday. I had a call in sick on Monday morning. And we were sitting there Sunday night listening to this rock station I was going to work at. And he calls in and calls a request and he tells them, your new salesperson's coming in tomorrow. I'd like to dedicate the song cocaine to him. I mean, it was just insanity. And um, <laughs> all these, I mean, I, my memory's incredible, but I, I can remember this whole thing has now brought me back to sitting in his house. I mean, we're talking 1984. And, and I, I remember it like it's yesterday. I, I know exactly where I was sitting, what was going on, when he called the radio station. And I looked at him, I said, Joe, what the hell? are you doing what is wrong with you so yeah oh boy okay so did you did you end up actually working at the radio station did you yeah they they put up with me for about a year and a half somehow and even with doing cocaine and even at the end i started telling them i only (laughs) wanted to work part-time i mean I, i was just insane and i dealt with managers and somehow they look just my whole life people looked the other way and i don't know why they either didn't want to challenge me. I mean, it was really nobody. There was one point when I was in my, my second, my main marriage that I had children with where I was going through the same thing, disappearing for days at a time. I had two children and I won an award. I was, uh, I won the pinnacle, uh, the President's Club Award, I worked for Clear Channel Outdoor that has offices, 40 offices in the U.S. and another 30 internationally. I won the best, the top salesperson in New York office in 2005 and then also won the top 10 in the entire, internationally of anywhere. And they and I was um, they were I was being sent to San Antonio, which was the corporate office and a big presentation for whoops, all these people. And um, and what ended up happening was my wife didn't want to go with. She said, you have no consequences. How the hell are you the top salesperson when you're disappearing every week doing cocaine every day? What the hell is wrong with you? And it just went on and on and on. And again, she was upset because I just wasn't getting any consequences. It kept getting, I kept making more and more, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had no idea. I was just juggling and somehow I was able to get through. And uh, what ended up working stopped working. And, uh, you know, uh, addiction is a progressive disease and it, it, it took a long time. Unfortunately, my bottoms kept getting lower and lower and lower because had I stopped early on, I would have still had everything. I would have had a marriage, my kids and my house and my dogs and addiction beats the crap out of you. So you ended up homeless, you said. I basically, not basically, I ended up homeless. When things were done, I was going through my... I was married to Stacy. Um, we got married on um, 
St. Patrick's Day, so March 17th, 2001. Um, I had already been in a rehab by the middle of 2001. I, um, I spent 9-11 in a rehab wow. in Western Pennsylvania because my wife got me in during the Labor Day holiday. I wouldn't, she left me and I was using 24-7 and my I was working for AOL at the time, selling online advertising. It was before the merger of AOL and Time Warner. My last account was the restaurant top of the world, restaurant on restaurant on the world at the top of the World Trade Center. I was there every morning at 8.30. Had I not been in rehab, I would have been on the top. I probably would have been on the top floor of World Trade Center had yep. I not been in rehab. Wow. Yep. So, and you just, probably would not be with us today. No, I would not if that had been the case. Wow. Yeah. So it. it, it it's did, just, Alan, it, did you progress to? Were you doing any other drugs? Did you progress? Yeah. Or just I mean, I, I dabbled. I, okay. I didn't really like anything else. Okay. Uh, early on, when I did cocaine, and, and then I smoked cocaine. So you know, I did the whole cocaine i was in love with cocaine so it didn't matter if it was powder if it was crack i'd smoke it you know whatever Will you give me cocaine i didn't shoot it that was i was scared of needles and that probably helped save my life because thank god i never got involved with that but but uh by the time i was doing cocaine and i was working at clear channel i had a bottle of cough medicine that had um what did they put in the cough medicine? Codeine. I, so I was taking codeine shots and going to the bathroom, doing lines of cocaine. Um, I had some knee issues and I've had knee replacements. So I finagled the doctors to give me Percocets and, and um, all different type of painkillers, oxycodone. I was getting that. So I used them in conjunction a little bit, but that what my main drug choice was cocaine. Understood. Okay, so you've uh, lost your job, lost your family, you're homeless. So what made you want to change? Well, you know what? I've had a couple of moments. My story, as you can tell, I mean, not that I'm special or that my story is worse than anybody else, but, but I've got a pretty decent story of craziness and um you know, very, and, and in showing tremendous gratitude because of all the things that have happened to me. But, but I, I, I've had a couple of things that, that I got all the way to the bottom and, you know, and, and I really liked your question or I loved your question because it really does have to deal with the individual reaching a bottom for them to realize that they're asking or that they want to get help. Anything short of those two things, the person's not going to get better. You can force them. You could threaten them. They could lose their job, their marriage, their relationship, go to jail. doesn't make a difference. If you don't hit that bottom and decide that you want to get better. So for me, um, my first realization was as I was going through divorce, that's when I started losing everything, when I hit bottom. And my bottom was actually like seven months before I finally hit the actual day that I stopped using for the last time. So as you shared, I 
was going through a divorce. My wife, um, she got an order of protection. I was served the divorce papers. Um, later on after that, very soon after, I tested positive because I was acting erratically at work. So I tested positive for that, and it's a public company, so I was fired. Um, then on top of that, um, so now I've lost my house. Um, I've lost my kids. I've lost my wife. As we're going through the divorce, they tested me in court. One of the times I went in, I tested positive for cocaine. The judge ruled that I would not be able to see or talk to my kids for six months until I could produce weekly clean tests at a court for six months. When he said that, that was probably the beginning of how impactful this was because I remember putting my hands in my my head in my hands when he said that I couldn't see my kids for six months. And now it became concrete and clear. It was like, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to, I know I can't stop. So now I can't see my kids. So that that's the one bottom is all of these things that happened to me. And then um, while this is all going on, so now I lost my job. I have no money. We had to empty out my 401k. Um, I had nothing. And then it got to the point where the last point was um, I was renting an apartment at one of my best friend's house at his house. He had a basement apartment. I had blacked out and gone on a two day run, three day run. And I had never blacked out before. So there was something mixed with this cocaine. I leveled his entire apartment. There wasn't a stitch of furniture that was left in the apartment standing. Um, his wife, who's my friend, told me, Alan, I didn't want to call the police, but you were banging. And all I heard was banging and yelling and you're running around. And I was just knocking everything over. I was told it took 13 policemen to come in. They tied me to a board with no clothes. And I went to the hospital. And when I was at the hospital, my friend packed my car with everything and I got thrown out. So now I was homeless. That was the last piece. And I didn't know what to do. And, and again, like I said, that was February of 2007 by my, my first, my day of sobriety is December 8th, 2007. So it was another, I was going to say that's February. And so for the next 10 months, you're homeless, but you're still using. I'm still using. Wow. I'm digging and zagging, finding money from places. But finally, and I know I'm going on too long. No, but, you're not going on too long. But this, part, this part's really important. Yeah, 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 yeah. One of those holy crap moments. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, 
a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. I was, it was December 2007. I'm using, I'm on another six-week run. And um, I had a therapist that was still seeing me despite all the crap that was going on and my relapsing and everything else. And she was just an angel. And she hadn't seen me, like I said, in six weeks. And she left a message on my phone. And um, I don't usually, I didn't, usually when I was using, I wouldn't listen to my messages. So I was on another two day run. I crawled into the bathroom. I saw the phone blinking, heard the message. And it was my therapist, Nancy. And she said, Alan, you have to come back now or you're going to die. Please, please call me. You have to come back now or you're going to die and you don't have to die. I hung the phone up, I crawled back into my bed after throwing up and I got back six hours later, I got up another four or five hours later, went back to the bathroom, picked up the phone, listened to, I don't know why, but it just struck me differently. I listened to the message again and I called Nancy and she said, oh my God, Alan, I thought you were dead. Please, you got to go back. So there was a Monday night meeting that I usually went to. She said, got to go back let the people see who you are see let them see you i my skin color if when i wouldn't eat and all i do is use cocaine for days i my skin would turn ash gray and that's what i did i promised her that i would and i crawled back to that meeting monday night people looked at me and shook their head and a couple of people came over and i said yeah it's been a bunch of days but that that was the last day that i found it necessary to use wow Wow. And I've lost my therapist since she passed away two years, three years after that. Oh, I'm sorry. uh, Yeah, it it, it was tough losing her. She's an amazing person. And uh, miraculously, December 8th this year, I will be 14 years sober. That, you know, that is huge, Alan. Huge. I mean, very, very well done. Thank you. Um, You know, I know that it's, I I just know it's not easy. I'm not a former addict, but I've heard from enough and talked to enough that I know it's not easy. There's a gentleman that I follow on Instagram, and every day he says, okay, today's day 400 without alcohol. Today's day 401, and he he puts a little thing on there. So it's it's every day. You have to wake up every morning and say, I'm going to be sober today. Well, when I get up in the morning, I learned, I didn't understand it early on, but it, you know, it rings true. All I have is I happen, I had my alarm set for 5.30 this morning. And I got up and worked out. So I had 5.30. So I had as much time this morning as anybody else that got up with me. And I'm going to get through this day. And it's a pretty good shot. I'm going to get through this day sober. And I just want to say something. You, and I should have said this earlier. The background, your podcast, 
your beautiful beaming face and the bright gray <laughs> hair. It, it looked, you're beautiful. What a, what a beautiful background and picture with everything with your beautiful red and your beautiful hair. It, it's really striking. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. I wanted to mention that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, I just really have to validate you for 13 and a half, let's say 13 and a half years sober. You've only got three more months, but you know, it's, it, it, it's just, I know it's not easy. And so well done you. I've had people on the podcast who say, I don't want to be acknowledged for, for being sober. You know, it's not, it's not like, the greatest thing in my life or whatever, but it, it does deserve an acknowledgement as far as I'm concerned. When you are addicted to drugs, you know, the drugs have control of your life. And so to be able to not only come back from that and get clean and sober, but to remain clean and sober for, well, what is it like over 3000 days, you know, I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's you a know. lot of days. I do that once in a while. There's something, it's called a duration calendar. And I go in and you put your sobriety date in and then they, there's a box that says, do you want to include today? And, and then it tells you how many days you're sober. But I'll tell you what, I'm, I appreciate you saying that. And I am proud of the amount of time that I have. Um, I do a podcast called the Alan Charles show, which is on Thursday evenings. And tonight I am talking about exactly that. Why did I break my anonymity to go out, talk to people, speak around the country and to do my radio show to help people? Why did I break my anonymity? And I had to because it's exactly what you just spoke about. People don't understand. People that are loved ones of people that are going through addiction don't understand. You really have to want to get better and you have to break through all of the stigma. And that's what my show deals with. I deal with the stigma and and reality because that's the important part is unless you give it straight. And like you said, you weren't an addict, but you've heard it enough. You've been involved with it. You're giving back. It's amazing the work you're doing. But you know what? Nobody can tell it like me because I went through it and I feel it and it ruined my life and I had to deal with it. So if you want to know how an addict thinks and how an addict talks, talk to me. And I'm happy to do that because I give it to you straight. I, I won't sugarcoat it because it's horrific. And, and you know, Alan, that's why we talk to people such as yourself, because we feel that when someone such as yourself tells your story on our podcast, somebody's going to listen and go either go, oh my God, I have to get my brother, son, husband, father, mother into treatment, or I have to get myself into treatment. And that's the whole reason for doing this podcast and the whole reason for telling stories such as yours. Because if you can do it, anybody listening to this podcast can do it. That It's funny that you say that because with my my book, walking out the other side. I mean, that has been the go-to thing about my entire recovery. I remember I was sober maybe a couple of months and I was around the corner in a meeting and somebody was talking to my sponsor and I had been in and out for seven years relapsing. And I heard this, I didn't know who it was, but I heard, and I heard the person say, said to my sponsor, why are you wasting your time with Alan? He's relapsed 30 times. You know, he's only going to die. 
And when I heard that, it was, but it was a, it was reality. The person probably wasn't the nicest thing to hear, but he wasn't wrong. Most of the people in the room felt that way. I just kept coming back because I had nowhere else to go. I, I mean, I had uh, gone through all my chances and my lies and my promises, and it, there was no one, nowhere else to go. But the program of recovery, they always have the door open for you, and thank God for that. <laughs> Seriously. Alan, what prompted you to write the book, and when did you do that? Okay, so like I shared, my, my recovery date is uh, December 8th, 2007, and uh, that first year, putting the first 365 days in a row together was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, as things started to get better, and I started to gain trust, and I became employable, and uh, my ex-wife would let me start to see my children and all that stuff. It took me a while. Um, one of the things that I have dealt with, and I still deal with it now, is there is that not feeling good enough about myself. I, I still get those messages, and, and, and I still have trouble communicating, even though I've become a, a hell of a communicator. Um there's times where I just rather be in the back of the room and be quiet and not talk to anybody. And, and I still suffer from that. So I try to, uh, my therapist, Nancy, when I went to the last rehab that I went to, and I was lucky, I went to some of the top places in the country. I've been to the Karen Foundation, plug for them, Wickensburg, um, in um, Ornersville, Pennsylvania. And, and the last place I went to was the Meadows, which is out in Wickensburg, Arizona. And, you know, if you Google the Meadows, it would tell you all the celebrities that went there. I mean, that is top of the line. And um, my therapist, Nancy, told me, she said, Alan, you have to open up and let people see who you are. I'm the only one that knows your life. If you do not put yourself out there, there's no way you're going to ever get better. And that just stayed with me. And I had so much trouble allowing people to see who I was. And so eventually, as I was talking about it and talked to different people, I mean, I've had some amazing good things happen as well as the horrific things. And he said, Alan, your life has been so crazy. You should write a book. And I had been saving my, my roommate in college, Ralph, craziest stories would happen. After we graduated college, we stayed in touch. And every month or two, I'd call him. He said, what's going on? So I'd tell him what was going on. He said, that's crazy. He said, you should write a book. And that was when I was 24, 25. So I started taking notes at 24, 25. I throw it in a manila folder. And so by the time all of this happened and unfolded, I had a, a manila folder like this. And I said, you know what? I, it, I've got to put everything out there. If I come clean about who I am and all the things I've gone through, yeah, maybe it'll help somebody. But I was more concerned of what is it going to do for me? Am I now really putting myself out there? And then you could imagine the day before the book was being published, I'm like, I'm never going to be able to take this back. I'm going to, everybody's going to know that I am an addict and all the crazy drunk cocaine-fueled stuff and the sex and all the crazy stuff that I put in my book. Everybody's going to know everything. But you know what? I sat and thought and thought. So, so the time-wise, this was 
I started writing the book in 2012. So that was like four years after I got sober. And it took me three years to write the book. I had a ghostwriter that helped me, but I was involved and I wrote every line of changing things. And I, it was all, it's all my stuff. So um, the day before it went out, I was crazed. And then when it went out, I started getting emails and I started getting texts. And the next month or two, it was a roller coaster. I was getting these messages. I bought this book for my husband. It's everything that he's gone through. I can't believe that I understand what's going on. And just the letters and the texts, it was amazing. It blew me away. And I have never looked back about my anonymity and breaking it. You have helped countless people, people that you won't even know about, you know, that maybe won't reach out, but who read the book and it changed their lives. Speaking of which, how can people find your book, Alan? You know what? I don't know how much time we have, but it, the name of my book is Walking Out the Other Side, an Addict's Journey from Loneliness to Life. My website is Walking Out the Other Side. If you Google Walking Out the Other Side, it's on my book's available on all online stores. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, just put in walking out the other side. It'll pop up. Okay. Do we have time? Can I read you a, a 45 second anniversary card that my therapist sent me? And it's almost verbatim of what you just said. It's like, we're going, I had this sitting here <laughs> and all of a sudden you started saying what this card is. So, and, and just, I, I put the card in my book because it meant so much to me. So Nancy wrote, dear Alan, how honored and blessed I am to be a part of your recovery. The road is long and narrow. Not everyone will have the gift of sobriety. I've been a witness to your struggle. Surely there is a God because you were at the point where only the grace of God could lift you out of hell. Amazing grace. As you continue this journey, you will know why God would not rest until you were able to surrender. Your story will help those who have lost all hope, who have come to believe that they can't get it. And this truth will have an impact, a ripple effect on so many others that you will never even meet. That's how it works. You are a miracle. I love you, Nancy. Wow. So true. Said, Everything she says said, is true. you said, I got chills. It brought that right back to me. And that was my third anniversary. And she wrote me that card and wow. sitting here on my desk. Wow. Alan, thank you so much for telling your story today. I mean, I, you know, you, you said yourself, you know, in your book, like you have to talk about all the bad things and, you know, how bad it got. And I think a lot of people struggle with, you know, coming clean on a lot of that stuff. And yet when they do, and pretty much everybody that's been on this podcast has had to come up with, you know, the, the dirty stuff. But it, it, I think it is not only helpful to, you know, yourself, but also to other people. And that's, once again, why we have people such as yourself. And I cannot thank you enough for everything you do with your podcast, with your public speaking. It, to, to actually end this pandemic, it's going to take not just a village, it's going to take, you know, a full-on, you know, country of people to get on board and to help others, you know. And as I told you, I'm not a former addict. No one in my family is a former addict. 
but this pandemic affects me. It affects every single person walking around out there. And if you think it doesn't, then, and I'm not talking to you, Alan, I'm talking to you, listener. If you think this doesn't affect you, you need to think again. This pandemic is destroying our country and not to mention other countries. But Alan, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for your podcast. Thank you for your book. And just thank you for being who you are. Jody, thank you so much. And again, thank you for what you do. You're an amazing light and I can just feel your presence. So thank you for allowing me to be here. If anybody needs somebody, because you're right, the it's affected us. And I've shared on my, I've been sharing for the last year. This pandemic's affected me. I was sequestered in my apartment by myself. I'm divorced. I wasn't seeing anybody. So yes, we're it. Everybody has to step up because we all have to bond together because so many people have had addiction problems, relapsed or new problems. So thank you, Joni, for everything you do. And it was a pleasure. If anybody needs anybody to speak, I'm always available. Alan at walking out the other Alan walking out the other side.com. Thank you for listening today. I know I got on my soapbox a little bit today, but I, I really can't help it. You know, I, I, I don't devalue the coronavirus or any of what's going on there. But what, what drives me is that the addiction pandemic is way worse than any virus will ever be. Um, you know, we had an interview last week where we talked to Dr. Gelfand, And, you know, before there was Oxycontin, there was heroin, there was morphine, there was Valium. Drug addiction has been around for a long time. And unless we all band together, unless we all do something about it, it's not going to go away. So if you're listening, you need to do something about it, whether it's for yourself, for a loved one, your family, or somebody you don't even know. You need to do something because this pandemic This drug addiction pandemic affects you. We'll be back again next week. We have several more interviews lined up and we will keep talking. Have a good one. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.